All right, I got back about, uh, I think, around 11 o'clock last night from family camp. It was there Friday night and Saturday. And uh, what a great camp uh, we're having this year. Uh, most everybody's still up there. They're done with their morning session, getting ready for lunch, just enjoying the, the lake. What a blast. Uh, Bible study and worship and then just tons of good family activity. Big year for horseshoes. Big year for horseshoes. Um, we're talking a horseshoe tournament. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, that was exciting. A little bit of a twist in the canoe race. Uh, traditionally, it's a four-person canoe race. Uh, we were informed due to new safety regulations, the four-man canoes only have, can only have three people in them now. Uh, so that was both a numeric and strategic problem because... We didn't know where the third person should sit in the number two slot or in the number three. So it's an untested kind of a thing, you know. So anyway, we've got that squared away. It turned out we had so many people in the canoe race that we had to have two heats. Uh, and, and so uh, the first heat went, the second heat went. We thought we'd just get the winners, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the two winners, and then the next fastest time would just have a, a final canoe race. And then I, you know... Some of you guys can relate to this. You know, we're getting older, some of us, and um, you know you shouldn't do certain things, but you still you still want to. You know, you still think I could have been a contender. You know, <laughs> you, you still think you you got it in you. If, if they had just if somebody had just tapped on you and said, "Hey, we need you as the canoe guy," you know, you you could have you know and stuff. And you still have that kind of a Rocky esque mentality to you. And and so I ended up in a canoe with my daughter and son in law. Uh, and uh, after our heat, which was the second heat, any thought of having a third race? Uh, I, I, as a matter of fact, I want somebody to explain to me why my kidneys would hurt after a canoe race. Uh, if you can explain that, I have no... I, you know, people say, oh, yeah, I got muscles that I didn't know. My kidneys hurt, and, and I don't know what that means. I think it's rather serious, but anyway... Uh, I, I thought, I thought, you know, if I have to go in the canoe again, I'm going to die. There, and, and, but I guess that wouldn't be too bad. I thought because, you know, uh, I always wanted to die in some ministry. I didn't think it would be a canoe race, but and I could just lay in the canoe and they put my Bible on my chest and push me over the spillway, uh, kind of like the ancient heroes of old, you know. But uh, anyway, so we ended up taking the f two winners and then the next fastest time, uh, I did win bronze. We did win bronze in the canoe race. So after, after a contested turn uh, at, at Long Island, but that's a whole nother story. But anyway, a lot of big fish were caught up there. Those of you who are fishermen, my uh, son-in-law, Johnny, won the competition with a 16-inch bass that he caught in that lake. Monster bass fish, you know, scared me. You know, he said, would you net that? And I go, no, the fish is going to kill me, you know, and stuff. No, I made that part up. But uh, but mostly a lot of the kids, little kids catching fish like crazy and, and uh, big fish. You know, the, the kids were catching 12, 13-inch uh, bass and stuff. And so it was really just a sweet time. We had activities, of course, for, uh, you know, all the way from toddler up to adult. And uh, it, we're going to get dates for next year. And so you, uh, as soon as we have them, we'll let you know so you can start planning for that. But uh, what a blast. It was, and a real neat spiritual emphasis on family uh, and, and just sweet. So when the folks get back, we'll probably do a slideshow, I'm sure. And uh, also, uh, because of some newfangled invention called the Internet, uh, everybody is going to be able to upload their photos to Flickr.com. 
and then you'll be able to log in, and if you want to, you can see everybody's photos of family camp and wish you were there. So anyway, uh, that's cool. Keep those guys in prayer. They're going to have lunch at 1130 and then head down. Camp is over officially at noon, so keep them in prayer for traveling mercies. Uh, saw bear, by the way, saw bear first thing. Big old black bear. As we were driving down into camp, running along the road, my wife wanted to get out and take a picture of it. She has no fear of animals. I fear all animals. Uh, and so cooler heads prevailed. Actually, I just wouldn't stop is what it was. She was willing to jump at that, you know, but no. Uh, we stopped and watched them for a while, and I didn't think it was uh, prudent to get out of the car. But anyway... Sweet bear. Deer walked through the camp during the volleyball game, and uh, it's just really a sweet, uh, a sweet time for the kids. We're going to study the book of Joshua, as we've been doing for some weeks now, for uh, I guess about 15 or 16 weeks. We're in uh, chapter 10, the end of chapter 10, verse 27 to be exact, and we're going to look all the way through to the end of chapter 11. Don't be alarmed. I was able to finish on time first service. Uh, So we will get you out of here. You're not going to have to pretend you need to go to the bathroom or anything like that. So we're going to look at that. That's our text. The topic there, Joshua's campaigns to conquer the land of Canaan culminate with a decisive victory by the waters of Merom, where he hamstrings the enemy's horses and burns their chariots. The title of our message, Chariots on Fire. In uh, chapter 11, we're going to look. I'm going to read three verses from chapter 11 to set the context. And then we will be going back through all of the verses as we comment. But it's such a long section, I don't want to have to read it through and then come back to it. So let's just start in chapter 11, verse 15. We'll read verses 15, 16, and 17 so we know what we're talking about. As the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Thus Joshua took all this land... The mountain country, all the south, all the land of Goshen, the lowland and the Jordan plain, the mountains of Israel and its lowlands. From Mount Halak and the ascent to Seir, even as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon, he captured all their kings and struck them down and killed them. Let's pray. Lord, all this talk of victory in the book of Joshua uh, whets our spiritual appetite, as it were, to be victorious in our own walk with the Lord. There are areas, Lord, where we've known victory, other areas perhaps where we're struggling to maintain victory, some areas yet to be conquered. I pray that as we continue, and especially this morning, Lord, you'd help us to have courage to believe, Lord, that you can give us the victory that you've won for us on the cross at Calvary and that we would receive it by faith. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, Amen. The Israelite soldiers knew their way around a sword. Eleven times in chapters 10 and 11, you read about their sword play. The phrase that keeps recurring is, struck it with the edge of the sword. No matter the terrain or the tactics of their enemies, the sword was sufficient in every battle. Now, it's not hard to see the Israelite swords as typical of our sword, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the Bible. Here's a couple of verses familiar to most of you that describe the Bible as a sword. Ephesians 6, 17, we're told to take the sword of the Spirit, 
which is the word of God. And then in Hebrews chapter four, verse 12, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two edged sword. As we read of their victories in Canaan, the Lord intends for us to improve on our sword play. Reading through this summary of their campaigns, two images emerge. The first is the image of the sword-wielding soldier. The second is the image of a sword-yielding servant. I'll organize my thoughts around those two images and we'll see, number one, you've been enlisted as a sword-wielding soldier, and number two, you've been entrusted as a sword-yielding servant. First of all, you've been enlisted as a sword-wielding soldier. Even if you haven't seen the movie, you're probably familiar with the scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark where a sword-wielding man confronts Indiana Jones in the alley and then Indiana Jones takes out his gun and just shoots him. I sometimes feel like that man in my walk with the Lord, as if I've come to a gunfight with a knife. It can seem as though I lack, we lack sufficient weaponry in the Christian warfare, when in fact, our weapons are both sufficient and superior. Armed with only swords, the Israelites conquered Canaan. Reading through the summary of their campaigns, you first notice that their swords were sufficient and superior, regardless the terrain. Let me read a few selected verses. Just listen for the various terrain upon which these battles were fought. Chapter 10, verse 40 says, So Joshua conquered all the land, the mountain country and the south, and the lowland and the wilderness slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed, as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. Then in chapter 11, it begins in verse 1, And it came to pass when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard these things, that he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and the king of Shimron, and the king of Akshaph, and to the kings who were from the north, in the mountains, in the plain south of Chinneroth, in the lowland, and in the heights of Dor on the west. To the Canaanites in the east and in the west, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite in the mountains, and the Hivite below Hermon in the land of Mizpah. Then down in 1116, thus Joshua took all the land, mountain country, the south, all the land of Goshen, the lowland and the Jordan plain, the mountains of Israel and its lowlands. And so reading through that, you see mountains and lowlands and wilderness slopes, plains and heights. Whether the enemy was behind walled cities or out in the open field, on any and every terrain, the Israelites defeated them with their swords alone. Your life involves many different terrains. Each of the environments in which you might find yourself could be compared to a different terrain and it provides a unique challenge. Your marriage, your work, your school, your church... All of these are a unique terrain in your life. They present a slightly different obstacles, a slightly different nuances to your walk with the Lord. You might be going through something right now that seems like a difficult uphill battle. Maybe something is, we would say, snowballing downhill. So you see, we use this in our common idioms in vernacular. We, we talk about those uphill battles. And, and this is where it comes from, this idea that Joshua and his men, they had to go up these mountains. They had to fight these uphill battles. Uh, or whether it was in a valley, we talk about just being in kind of a, a low time in our life. And so we're already familiar with this imagery. And so we can plug ourselves into this story. 
And so whether it's an uphill battle or a snowball rolling down, there you stand with your sword, the word of God. You can look at the Israelites winning battle after battle on every possible terrain, and you can believe that you too have a weapon that is sufficient and superior for the task at hand. Then too, you see that the enemies of Israel employed many tactics, no matter their sword play. Uh, excuse me, no matter the, the tactics, their sword play won the day. Let's notice some of their tactics as we begin in chapter 10, verse 28. On that day, Joshua took Makeda and he struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them, all the people who were in it. He let none remain. He also did to the king of Makeda as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua passed from Makeda and all Israel with him to Libna. And they fought against Libna. And the Lord also delivered it and its king into the hand of Israel. He struck it and all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword. He let none remain in it, but did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Some battles are easier than others. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've got a few victories under your belt. Uh, you, you have some areas in your life that you feel are more or less under control. And, and uh, you're not really struggling in them. But then along comes something that is more of a challenge. Verse 31. Then Joshua passed from Libna and all Israel with him to Lashish. And they encamped against it and they fought against it. And the Lord delivered Lashish into the hand of Israel, who took it on the second day and struck it and all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, according to all that he had done to Libna. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came to help Lashish, and Joshua struck him and his people until he left him none remaining. Now, Lashish didn't fall so easily. The battle went into a second day and reinforcements came to aid them and the Israelites had them to deal with as well. Just because you have God's word, it doesn't mean every battle will be easily won. Certainly won but not easily won, oftentimes you must persevere. Uh, it is precisely at this point many Christians grow discouraged. And it is precisely at this point Christians begin to think God's word needs supplementing. One of the worst things that you can do is try to supplement the word of God. Uh, you know... It, it doesn't need supplementing. When the battle is a little bit more difficult, God is wanting to show you new things in order to grow you. Paul the Apostle, great example. He used himself as an example. He said, hey, I follow Christ, you follow me. And so we can always look to Paul as an example. Paul had a serious physical ailment. He called it the thorn in his flesh. And he asked the Lord to remove it. Uh, and so it was a battle that had been going on for a time. Was, there was no easy victory in that area. Though he was serving the Lord, though he, this great apostle had this struggle, and he sought the Lord for it. And the Lord came to him, Paul says, after the third time, and he said, I'm not going to take it away. You're going to learn through it that my strength is sufficient in your weakness. And then Paul embraced that as his victory over that struggle. Uh, and so many times, uh, God will bring that, will allow that. I'm not saying it's wrong to go to 
a healing service or to seek healing. We pray for healing. We believe in healing. We believe in miracles. But I think sometimes you get to a point where God has told you, this is my plan for your life. It's not the plan you would have chosen, but it is my plan. And I want you to embrace it. I want you to take that sword and meet the enemy with courage and with strength. And that's the victory. The victory is in your overcoming the weakness of your flesh in my strength. And so there are going to be battles in your life that are not so easily won. They're going to be winnable, but they're not so easily won. God wants to show you new things so that he can grow you. Now, after Lashish, the battles return to what was more normal for the children of Israel. We read, starting in verse 34, From Lashish, Joshua passed to Eglon and all Israel with him, and they encamped against it and fought against it. They took it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. All the people who were in it, he utterly destroyed that day, according to all that he had done to Lashish. So Joshua went up from Eglon and all Israel with him to Hebron, and they fought against it. And they took it and struck it with the edge of the sword, its king and all its cities and all the people who were in it. He left none remaining according to all that he had done to Eglon, but utterly destroyed it and all the people who were in it. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to Debir, and they fought against it. And he took it and its king and all its cities. And they struck them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed all the people who were in it. He left none remaining. As he had done to Hebron, so he did to Debir and its king, as he had done also to Libna, And it's king. Now here, one of the things we learn is to never relax after victory, but to keep on conquering. As we've seen and said before in our studies in Joshua, there will be no end to our struggles until we are out of these bodies and with the Lord in heaven. We can enjoy what is called a spiritual rest, but it is a rest that we enter into as soldiers who are fighting against fierce and unrelenting foes. And so as long as I'm alive in this body, which is not doing too well right now, and on this earth, which is not doing too well right now, against the devil, who's fierce and angry, uh, we're going to have struggles. And so we can never relax. We're never going to get to a place in the Christian life uh, where we uh, have gone through all of the struggles and trials. They're just going to keep coming but we're going to get really a lot better at receiving them as a gift from the Lord to show us more about his mercy. You know, there's a, somebody was telling me about a commercial the other day where a guy comes out of a room or something and his, his wife says, what happened? He goes, I just went through the entire internet done with the internet. So it's like a high speed internet commercial. And he claims he's surfed every website on the internet, you know, and stuff. And uh, sometimes I think we, as Christians, think, well, that's it, I'm done. I've, I've won the final battle. Now I can just cruise, and, and uh, it's just never going to be that way. And those of us who are getting older, uh, it can be a surprise, can it? You, know, you thought, by now, you know, but it just keeps coming. Uh, but the Lord is so much sweeter than he ever was before in revealing himself. And so enjoy God's spiritual rest, but know that you're a soldier for the long haul. In verse 40, Joshua conquered all the land, the mountain country in the south and the lowland and the wilderness slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. And Joshua conquered them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. All these kings and their land, Joshua took at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. 
Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. It was, you might say, an all-terrain victory. And so can yours be. Too often, our lives can get unbalanced. A couple of ways that happens. One is that we could be having difficulties in a particular terrain. And so we somewhat abandon it and spend more time where we feel more successful. Other times, similar situation, except that we really want to be in a certain terrain in our life. This happens a lot with folks that have careers. Nothing wrong with a career. Uh, But a lot of times, if people are really honest about it, they'd rather be at work than at home. There's, There's a... There's just something about being at work. They're, they feel more respected. They feel a sense of authority. They feel like they're accomplishing something. The, you know, and then you go home and, and, and there's all what they consider kind of petty problems and you know, all this kind of stuff going on at home. And, and a lot of times people are unbalanced in their life in the sense that they're just spending too much time either in a terrain because they enjoy it or because they're afraid of some other terrain and they don't want to figure it out. With the word of God as our sword, the book of Ephesians says we are to walk circumspectly. It's a very interesting uh, term. It comes from our word for circumference and applied to walking, it means you are to walk in every direction at the same time. Now, that doesn't work. I've tried it. Uh, and, and, you know, as soon as I start, you know, it's like it, you're stuck, you know, and you end up just, you can't do it. And so it's a spiritual thing, obviously. And so the Lord says, hey, in every area of your life, I want you to walk at the same time. And I think we're getting some insight from Joshua. What the Lord means is that you should be conquering every territory equally and not have an imbalance in your life. And so if if there becomes an imbalance in your life, you're preferring something over something else, work over marriage or you know, recreation over church or something like that, God wants you to conquer those things. He wants you to overcome and have a balanced life. He wants you to conquer especially the most stressful terrain. Uh, otherwise, like anything else, when you get out of balance, uh, things don't work out so well. And eventually that terrain that you've been neglecting starts to impinge on the other areas of your life and makes it miserable as well. Now, this, uh, at the end of chapter 10, what we would call the southern campaign is over. Uh, Joshua went into Jericho, took it. It split the land in half. He went south, conquered. Then he would go north in chapter 11. It says they returned to the camp at Gilgal. I like to think of our fellowship of believers as a base camp. It should always be a place of refreshment and resupply of rest and realization. Uh, You've got a lot of different terrain in your life that you're dealing with. And we want to have uh, the ministry here at least be a place where you can resupply, go back out into that terrain, especially the difficult terrain, believe God Know that the Lord is with you, apply his word and see greater victory. And so we're trying to do as best we can. Every church should do its best to relieve burdens uh, because Jesus said, take my yoke upon you uh, and rest 
My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so we shouldn't be feeling strong, heavy burdens uh, when we come together in the church. It should be a place where our burdens are relaxed. And so I like to think of Calvary Hanford as a base camp from which we go out and gain our victory. Now, it also says here that they took their enemies one at a time because the Lord God of Israel fought for them. One at a time indicates a strategy on God's part. He designed each battle to show them and to grow them. So too in your life, one at a time, as it were, the Lord has prepared struggles and sufferings to reveal himself to you. In each of them, he fights for you. If you will but wield your sword, the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Even if you seem to be going through multiple battles in different terrain, uh, they are still designed by God for your good and his glory. They're not out of control. They're being woven together in your life to produce a wonderful work of living spiritual art. Now, in chapter 11, we come to the northern campaign. Its greatest battle was by the waters of Merom against a powerful alliance of enemy combatants. Beginning in chapter 11, verse 1, And it came to pass when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard these things, that he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and the king of Shimron, to the king of Akshaph, and to the kings who were from the north, in the mountains, in the plains south of Chinnereth, in the lowland, and in the heights of Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and in the west, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite in the mountains, and the Hivite below Hermon in the land of Mizpah. So they went out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore in multitude, with very many horses and chariots. And when all these kings had met together, they came and camped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. But the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow about this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Now, when you're fighting with swords you really don't want to come up against a horse-drawn chariot. Uh, that just on paper doesn't work out usually very well. Uh, there's a decided military advantage to the chariot. But God loves to stack the natural odds against you so that he can show you the value of his supernatural presence. I mean, you can't get more than a few paragraphs in the Old Testament without some crazy overwhelming odds that are coming against God's people. And God, you know, raising up some insane implement like the jawbone of a donkey that's going to kill a bunch of people in the hands of his servant or, uh, you know, a bunch of broken vessels with lights inside of them that are going to rout uh, an enemy. And so the Lord just he he loves to design these strategies and, and he he loves you so much that he designs them for your life as well. Uh, it's up to me. I, I, you know, I've had enough of it. You know, but the Lord says, oh, no, we haven't even started yet. There's so many more things I want to show you about overwhelming odds. And so no matter who or what you are facing or how long the odds against you seem, you need not worry about the ultimate outcome because the Lord has it well in hand. And so in verse seven of chapter 11, so Joshua and all the people of war with him came against them suddenly by the waters of Merom and they attacked them. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who defeated them and chased them to greater Sidon, to the brook Mizrafoth, and to the valley of Mizpah eastward. They attacked them until they left none of them remaining. So Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. 
Joshua turned back at that time and took Hazor, struck its king with the sword, for Hazor was formerly the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was none left breathing. Then he burned Hazor with fire. So all the cities of those kings and all their kings, Joshua took and struck with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But as for the cities that stood on their mounds, Israel burned none of them except Hazor only, which Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the children of Israel took as spoil for themselves. But they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them and they left none breathing. It's easy. uh, It's as easy, I should say, for the Lord to grant a big victory as it is a small one. Big and small are our designations based on what we see. Uh, There's a different type of victory if you drop down to verses 21 and 22. Instead of a giant army that had telephones, uh, you have just these, these amazing guys in verse 21 and 22. It says, And at that time Joshua came and cut off the Anakim from the mountains, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, And from the mountains of Judah and all the mountains of Israel, Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. None of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. They remained only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod. Now, these descendants of Anak were bad dudes. Does the name Goliath ring a bell? That's the kind of guys we're talking about. These guys were big and fierce. And so on the one hand, innumerable enemies with phenomenal military weaponry. And God says, don't worry about it, got that under control, just attack them and you'll kill them all. On the other hand, you've got these nine feet giants, you know, whose spear you can't really even pick up. The Lord says, hey, don't worry about that, I've got all that under control. And so there's all of these, uh, I sometimes call them exaggerations, but they're really just extremes to show you that whether, you know, because I know I've been there where you think, man, this is overwhelming. This is a, this is an innumerable enemy. If I were to put myself into a battle scene, if somebody said, Gene, can you describe what you're going through right now? I'd say, I sure can. I'm standing with a sword in the middle of a big open field and an innumerable army of chariots drawn by horses are coming at me with their weapons. Oh, OK, that makes sense. Then there are other times in your life, it's not quite that the the struggle is a little bit different. It's just, you know, and and it's more like I feel like I'm in a cage fight with Goliath. And I've never even been in the cage before. And I didn't just get spidey powers or anything like that. It's just me. You know, I took karate at the Y years ago or something, you know, but I, I, you know, I, I got no hope against this giant. As soon as he sees me, I'm dead meat. And, and we feel that we understand that. And God says it doesn't matter. Those are those are arbitrary designations. I do whatever I want to those enemies of yours. They only exist so that I can teach you about my strength. And got to be the, some of the favorite characters of the Old Testament are Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, the three friends of Daniel who would not bow down to Nebuchadnezzar. They warned them and they tried to force them in every possible way. And they said no. And Nebuchadnezzar said, well, then I'm going to kill you. I'm going to throw you into the burning, fiery furnace and heat it up seven times hotter than it's ever been. And they said, so what? You throw us into the furnace and our God will deliver us or he won't. Either way, we're not bowing down to your right. I love that. It's like, it doesn't matter to us. We believe God can deliver us. 
On the other hand, so what if he doesn't? We'll die and go to heaven. So what, what's the deal? Throw us. In fact, we'll jump in if you want us to, almost. I mean, these guys were radical. And I know they had kind of an attitude about them in a godly way because Nebuchadnezzar got mad. He was so mad that he had the furnace heated up seven times hotter than it's ever been. It wasn't enough to just burn these guys. He had to really burn them. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, a, it's I'll show you. It's kind of like that quote I read earlier from Russia. Well, if you sell enemy, weapons to our enemies, we're going to sell our weapons to your enemies, you know. So that's real diplomacy. But anyway, uh, it, it, and so, you know, the Lord, either way. And I was also thinking about facing these giants of Anak. Uh, when it is just you, in those times when it's not some overwhelming thing, but, you know, you feel like it, it, it's something that's like a giant and it's just you and you're feeling alone and forgotten by your fellow soldiers, you're not alone. I know that you know that and I know that, but we need to be reminded of that. It's an important realization because I've heard too many people criticize other believers for not being there for them. And over the years, as a pastor, I've been criticized. And, you know, I'm not, not going to say I haven't been. I know I'm wonderful, but people do criticize me. And uh, I'm joking. But uh, anyway, uh, you know, people have said, I remember one encounter. It's, it's kind of a humorous one, you know. Uh, so, but it, it's interesting. It's typical. Uh, we had this young man one time in the church, and, and uh, I still know him. We still have a relationship. It's no big deal. But, uh, you know, he came in and just wanted me to know that, uh, that I had not encouraged him properly. I had not been a strong source of encouragement in his life. And I said, well, okay. You know, I, you know we talked about that for a little while and, and, and all. And uh, then when we were done, I said, can I ask you just one question? Uh, you know, since we're having this simpatico kind of a talk, you know. He said, sure. And I go, I go, in that same period of time, can you name at least one thing that you ever did to encourage me as a brother in Christ? And he honestly said, no. I said, okay. Well, God bless you then. You know, and, and I didn't do it to be mean or sarcastic. I mean, it was just true. Uh, and, and, and I could say it and not be you know, worried about it because people will always let you down. Somebody is going to let you down in the Christian life. Some friend, some minister, uh, some servant of the Lord. And you know what? You are going to let somebody down in the Christian life. You can't always be there. There are times when you are going to be alone, supposedly. There's a song that Benny Hester used to sing. He was an early Christian musician. And uh, I really loved the song. And there was a line in it that said, uh, he was talking about Jesus and he says, though some know me well, nobody knows me like you. And, and really, you're never alone. And in those times when Christians seem to step back from you, when those that you're looking to to really stand with you step back and, and you're just all by yourself, you're not. And the Lord is coming and saying, hey, though fellowship is wonderful, Though we are to encourage one another and, and stir one another up and love on one another and do all of those things, it can never be a substitute for your relationship with me. And at the end of all this, when I stand before the Lord, it's not going to be me and anybody else. It's just going to be me. It's just going to be you all by your lonesome talking to Jesus. 
I don't know what that's going to be like. I'm committed to not talking. I'm just going to, I don't want to say anything unless I'm asked direct questions. I'm just going to say yes and no. Uh, I don't want to make a fool of myself. But, you know, you know, I think some people think, well, when I talk to the Lord, you know, you know, Gene, you were a lousy this. Well, these people. Well, I don't see any of them. Do you see any of them? I'm just talking to you right now. And it's going to hit us that, oh, wow, this was about me and Jesus. It wasn't about me and anybody else. And so uh, God will give you that. If you're feeling lonely today, if you're feeling left behind by other Christians, uh, you... uh, Maybe that's true. I mean, we're not here to tell you that's not happening. People are people and they fail. But your Jesus is with you. And he said, I will never, no, not ever, ever leave you or forsake you. And I think he designs times like that so that he can be there for you. Now, in the remaining verses of chapter 11, you've been entrusted as a sword yielding servant. They focus on Joshua and they remind us of the simple secret of his victories over the enemy. Before we look at that secret, let me just say a quick word about verses 16 through 20. Joshua took all the land and he goes down and talks about killing them all. And then it says in verse 20, it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might utterly destroy them and that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them as the Lord had commanded Moses. What are we to make of this hardening of their hearts by God? It sounds bad. Well, keep in mind that whatever we make of it, we're not able to conclude that God could not or would not have saved them had they sought after him. Right here, just as the Holy Spirit is telling us God hardened their hearts, he reminds us of the Gibeonites whom God spared. They were in the land of Canaan. They were designated for destruction. They sought the Lord and God saved them. And I would remind you also of Rahab and her family at the beginning of this military campaign, saved from destruction in Jericho. And so we must conclude that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so when we have this discussion about God hardening the human heart and then judging a person, it is in the bigger context of, God desiring to save them, but them refusing his offer of salvation. And so we interpret this hardening of the human heart to be an activity by which God gives a person what they choose. If they choose to harden their hearts against God by despising his mercy, he further hardens their heart. Uh, It's not that God refuses to save people. A few weeks ago, I, I, I gave you a quote from Norman Geisler. We were talking about the love of God. And Geisler, who's a great theologian, by the way, uh, he says, based on the love of God, you must conclude this. God must act to save people. He must act to try to save people. Now, why aren't every why isn't everyone saved? Because they don't respond to that and they despise that. Uh, And and so uh, when God hardens the heart is because he finds the heart hard. Now, back to Joshua. What was the secret of his soldiering? Verse 15 and verse 23. Verse 15, as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all the Lord had commanded Moses. In verse 23, so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had said to Moses. And Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. 
And then the land rested from war. Now we're taken back to Moses and Joshua's relationship with Moses. Reminds us that though he was a soldier, Joshua was first a servant. He obediently followed the commands of Moses as God's servant. After Joshua took over for Moses, he did not stop being a servant. You might recall how all these battles in the promised land begin. Before the battle of Jericho, in chapter 5 we read, And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked. And behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. The Lord stood before Joshua with his sword drawn in his hand. Joshua yielded his own sword to the Lord and bowed before him as a servant. You and I, of course, are sword-wielding yielding servants as well as sword-wielding servants. The Lord will come to you and ask you to yield to him. Will you obey what he has said in his word? Until you will yield to his word, you cannot really wield it in battle. Maybe you're battling right now. Your marriage is crumbling. Your parenting isn't working out. You can't stand going to work. Jesus is standing there as you contemplate those battles. He wants you first to yield. Now, I frequently use marriage as an example because it's something that we can all relate to. Uh, And so I'm not talking about anybody's marriage in particular. But uh, over the years, the experience I've had with marriage counseling of Christian couples, couples will come in. They have no biblical grounds for divorce. But their attitude is if... If God doesn't act miraculously, if you can't suggest how God is going to save our marriage, then we're going to end up divorced. I'm just letting you know right now that we're at the end. Uh, And I understand the emotion. I understand how people feel. But you can't do that. You can't come in and say, I refuse to yield to Jesus Christ. I know what he says in his word. It's the sword of the spirit, the word of God. I know what he's told me. He's told me to stay married and, and he, there's only these few uh, you, the, you know, grounds for divorce. I don't have those grounds. I am not going to yield to that word. I refuse to yield. Well, you know what? There's, there's only so much you can do to help a person in Christ using the word of God if they will not yield to the word of God. You're just wasting time. More than one couple I've told... I've just been honest. I said, look, you tell me where you're at. Are you contemplating divorce? And if they say yes, I'll say, well, you need to go home and pray about that. And when you want to come back and tell me that you're not contemplating divorce, but that you're yielded to the Lord and that you are willing to do what the word of God says, then we can begin to talk because not because I feel like I'm wasting my time. I feel like you're wasting the Lord's time because you've told him you are not going to do what he has already asked you to do. So why would you do anything else that he asked you to do? And it's really it's a harsh thing in one sense. Uh, but we have a loving God. Would he ask us to do anything that was that isn't good for us ultimately and bringing him glory? Uh, and so. Marriage is one area. There's lots of other areas where the, the thing is, am I going to yield? 
and say, okay, Lord, these things are off the table. I am willing to yield myself to you and see how you want to wield the sword in this area. And this is why the Christian life is so unsuccessful for so many people, because there isn't a yielding at the very beginning uh, that can bring victory. If you yield to Jesus, bowing down as his servant, then when you arise, the word becomes a powerful sword. It will defeat the anger, the resentment, the bitterness, the lack of forgiveness, and all of those things that are the real issue, whether it's your marriage or your parenting or at work or in the church or wherever, whatever terrain you find yourself in. There's always a real spiritual issue or several, and it's not what you think it is. Oftentimes, it's in my heart. It's in your heart. And, and the picture you need to have is of an unyielded servant. Imagine Joshua. I mean, since we're in the book of Joshua, when Joshua was there contemplating victory and he turns and he sees Jesus Christ with a drawn sword. Imagine him. Can you even imagine him unsheathing his own sword and saying, OK, Lord, let's do this. Let's come on. I'll fight you. But that's that is the posture of so many uh, of our battles where we know what. It, in fact, I, you know, in counseling, I ask people, hey, what would you tell somebody else? And they tell me what they would tell somebody else. And it's right on. But they won't do it because my situation is so different or I don't feel like doing it or uh, whatever excuse or whatever situation. And I know this is real stuff. I mean, this is where we live. And I want people to know that they are standing with a drawn sword, not fighting their spouse, not fighting their boss, not fighting their pastor or their Sunday school teacher or whoever. They're fighting the Lord who's waiting for them to drop their sword, bow down, take off their shoes. And then he says, okay, now we can go. Now you can take Jericho. But until you have that decisive determining experience that I'm in charge, we're not getting anywhere. I mean, I just can't let you do it. Because that comes first. There must be a yielding before there is a wielding. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these things. They're powerful, Lord. Wow. I pray that we would get into them uh, and look into our own hearts by the ministry of your Holy Spirit. Uh, and that uh, in any areas, Lord, and there, I know there are some in all of our lives where we are not fully yielded to you. May we throw our sandals away, Lord, and just bow down and worship you and see you win victory after victory with us as we properly wield the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, not to wound and hurt and kill others, but to show them your love and grace and compassion and mercy. We thank you and praise you in Jesus name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. Try and meet somebody you've never met.